All right, welcome to Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. And I'm Maddie. And this is a podcast where we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. So, you know, it's pretty great. Do I want to know the answer to this question? You know what most people throughout history have agreed is pretty darn great? Ice cream. Close. Flower crowns. Close. Nice wood fires. Close. It sucks! Those are, none of those are close. But thank you. I appreciate. Oh gosh, I just made a giant spike on the audio recording. Very nice. Well, hey, what's not to love about sex? This is a PG podcast. Don't ask that. Yeah, I don't know how to answer this question in a way that really is appropriate for school. Kids. Or wherever. If there are any kids listening, we're going to be discussing sex. So watch out for that. In a purely... No, don't watch out for sex. We are going to be discussing sex in a purely academic concept. Sex Watch 2017. As scientists do, we're going to be very mature and adult about this. Sex is an important part of the natural world, and there are different things that it's appropriate for kids to know about sex, depending on their age. That said, we're going to be talking about duck genitalia, and that stuff is wild. So if you're young enough that the thought of genitalia grosses you out, please stop listening. Or if you don't know what that word means, just leave now. (laughs) But probably for the best. (laughs) But if you are an eighth grader who hears the word duck penises and just laughs, or if you have an inner 8th grader that hears the word duck penises and laughs, which I do. I think we all do a little bit. They're so innocent and nice looking, and they have penises that are filled with lymph. That's a fun fact I spoiled for you right now. It's full of lymph. Duck cock. Woo! Horrible. Liz. (laughs) Liz, no. Liz, you're killing me. So, so why is sex relevant to evolutionary biology? Sex is pretty darn important to evolutionary biologists. After all, during sexual reproduction, our genes get mixed up. So some genes from the mother and some genes from the father are discarded. And then the leftover genes combine together to form a new creature that is biologically unique. It adds diversity to the population and allows for adjustments of a population to changing environmental. There's a bunch of bacteria that just reproduce by splitting in half, and they do evolve, and you can use them to study evolution and natural selection. But if we look out at the real world and not in a lab, most of the types of evolution that people study, especially evolution in plants and animals, for these this evolution to occur, you need successive generations of plants and animals, and to have successive generations of plants and animals, you need some plants and animals to have sex. Or rather, at least sexual reproduction. They're, an actual act of intercourse is not necessary, necessarily. That's true. Sexual reproduction is when the genes from two different organisms combine to make a new organism. And that's the process of meiosis. And so that's all still relevant for us, even if the trees aren't out there, you know, yeah, when we, use, when we use the word sex, we do kind of refer to the act of the sexy times. We like semantics here. It's a verb. We like semantics here. And sex. <laughs> so. This is fun. This is fun. So sexual selection is something you hear in eighth grade biology classes, and it makes people snicker. But 
For the longest time, the idea of sexual selection was something that people used to define traits that they couldn't really explain through normal natural selection. Charles Darwin was very upset about the peacock's feather because he had this great theory of natural selection and he could explain this is why this animal is so strong because it's a gorilla and gorillas need to be strong and stronger gorillas will have more babies. And this is why finches have all of those weird shaped beaks for the different types of seeds on the different islands. But it's really difficult to look at a peacock with this long feathery tail that has all these spots and is very flashy and very visible. And especially if you're a 19th century English gentleman and you, the way you interact with nature is by shooting it, you say, oh, a peacock, that makes a great target. Why on earth would natural selection favor something so flashy and obvious? It just makes you vulnerable to predators. It's just not very practical. It's just not practical, thought the man who was wearing a tailcoat and a top hat to go hunting. And, you know, the Indian heat. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of sexual selection is that these traits gave a fitness benefit because they made you more attractive to females. And this was a very controversial theory because it required one to believe that a woman was capable of selecting a mate. That was actually the rationale for why this couldn't work. Oh, the the females can't be choosing their mate. Females can't think about sex. Whenever women hear the word sex, they just hear a buzzing noise. So sexual selection was this idea that you could explain all these weird traits that didn't make a lot of sense by saying, well, maybe they don't make sense to us, but they probably make sense to somebody. They probably make sense to the females that select the males that have these weird traits. So how does that work? Sexual selection is the idea that you have these traits that are genetic and that because other animals want to mate with the animal that has this trait, that increases its fitness, even if the trait is something that in other ways might slightly decrease its fitness. So if a bright blue feather makes the other birds want to mate with you, then it might be worth it to have predators want to eat you slightly more. If bright blue feather bird manages to have a lot of reproductive sex before he gets eaten by a cat, he's done really well for himself and his kids will probably have blue feathers. And so they'll be passed on, even though high incidence of cat consumption. Yeah, and also here's another place where I'm going to be pedantic and point out some definitions Mate selection is where an animal selects another animal to mate with. Sexual selection is the long-term effect these choices have on the gene pool as a whole. So when we talk about sexual selection, that does not refer to the act of one animal choosing another animal to mate with. That refers to the long-term effect after generations. Of selecting genes in the gene pool. Yeah. So back in Darwin's day, in the generations after Darwin... People finally accepted, well, maybe female animals can make these sexual choices because they're dirty animals. And so they started thinking, well, what does sexual selection have to do with fitness? So the idea was, well, if a peacock has the energy to waste on growing flashy feathers, it must already have all the energy it needs in its body. So it must be very strong and it must have a great immune system. And so maybe the flashy feathers are a signal to a female that 
you should mate with this male because he's really healthy and that health will probably pass down to your kids. There's the fitness benefit. Your fitness increases because your children will be healthier. And while it's true that a female peacock will not want to mate with a sick-looking male peacock, you know, a peacock that doesn't have a lot of its feathers, a peacock that's kind of a mess, a female won't want to mate with that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a healthier tail indicates a healthier immune system and that this behavior in female peacocks is directly devoted towards providing a healthier immune system for their children. There's a difference between they're not mating with sick peacocks and peahens always look for the healthiest peacock to mate with. For me, the way I like to think of sexual selection is a feedback loop that's gone nuts. Sexual selection has four parts. An animal has an attraction with a genetic base. For example, a buffalo who is really attracted to a male buffalo with wings. And she has a gene that says, I am attracted to buffaloes with wings. And two, an animal has an attractive trait with a genetic basis. So you have to have a male buffalo with wings. Does and the like, wings are genetic. Do they wander into a KFC commercial somewhere along the line? Three, the animal with the attraction is able to choose an attractive mate. So the female buffalo has to have a choice of winged and non-winged buffalo. And four, that they produce a viable offspring. Delicious, delicious offspring. <laughs> so these baby buffalo, they don't necessarily have to have a stronger immune system than the other buffalo. Because what they do have is a high likelihood of having inherited both the genetic attraction for wings and the trait of having wings. And it's also another kind of catch-22 because while they have those wings so they can fly swiftly away from the hunters who will hunt them for their delicious wings, their delicious wings are what make them attractive to hunters. Sort of a catch-22 vicious scenario. That's very funny, but that goes directly counter to what I'm trying to do with this example. It really does. I'm sorry, Liz. Because actually the wings are too tiny for the buffaloes to fly. They're just there to look pretty. And be delicious. Okay, so very tiny wings in this example. They're very tiny wings with Oh, that makes, that makes sense, because you never see, like, gigantic buffalo wings. And, like, when you eat buffalo wings, they're only very tiny wings. So mm-hmm. I've always wondered, like, well, how'd they get this off the buffalo? I assume they're big ones. No. No. They're vestigial buffalo They're wings. very vestigial buffalo wings. But so you have a bunch of baby buffalo that have a high chance of having inherited the gene for being attracted to wings and the gene for having wings. And now these genes are linked. They're in the same little creatures. And so... All of those buffaloes' offspring will probably also have either the gene for having wings or the genes for being attracted to wings or both. And so then they'll probably hook up with their cousins. Great. Okay, they're animals. What do you expect? And as a result of this, because the genes for the attraction and the genes for the attractive trait become linked, you have a subpopulation within the population that is reproducing with itself and is over time able to produce more offspring. And so these linked genes spread and it creates a feedback loop of the more times you have animals with these traits, the more closely linked the traits become, 
and the more likely you are to have animals that per- perpetuate these traits. So sexual selection doesn't necessarily have to signal anything about the animals. It doesn't necessarily have to be related to health. And so if you're a scientist who wants to say, is this trait an example of sexual selection? You don't need to prove that there's anything going on with that trait other than it's a cool, weird trait. I have a few follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. So do the buffaloes only have two wings? And so you need like a huge buffalo herd in order to get enough (laughs) buffalo wings to feed everyone on Super Bowl Sunday? Or does each buffalo have a lot of like maybe thousands of tiny buffalo wings on them? So their entire bodies are covered Okay, let's just wings. get to the butt duck penises. Let's just get to the duck penises. <laughs> like some kind of weird Aquinian cherubim. Okay, so there's a lot of good examples out there of animals that have sexual selection, as we just described. So the classical examples of sexual selection are in birds. And that's why in so many bird species, you see these males that are much gaudier than the females. You don't only see it with birds of paradise and peacocks. You also see it with cardinals. Is there a reason why it's in birds? Fly away fast, maybe? So they're less harmed by predators? What is the predator rate in birds? I think it's a little less than it is for mammals. I think probably what it is, is that in mammals, there's size dimorphism between sexes. And there isn't size dimorphism between sexes and birds, just broadly, generally speaking. So that in birds, for a male to get access to a female, he can't get that by force. So he needs to get that some other way. And in mammals, you'll have stronger males who don't necessarily need to care about the female's attraction. Birds should rule the world. Gosh, mammals are problematic. Mammals suck. Get mammals rid of them. Suck. Oh my gosh. Let's get rid of the mammals. Let's all become birds. Oh uh, we'll gosh. Bird people, and we'll solve sexism. So generally, most people like to think, oh, sexual selection. It selects for sexy traits. It doesn't. It super doesn't. Well, the night. Well, the thing about sexual selection is that it's an example of positive feedback. It's, this is attractive, and so it's perpetuated, and so the attraction is perpetuated. It's in both the females and the males' interests to have the sexual selection occur to the gene pool. But there's also, and this isn't sexual selection, but it's kind of a flip side to it, evolution that's influenced by intraspecific competition. Intraspecific competition and intraspecific competition are two separate concepts. The prefix inter and intra, respectively, mean within two external groups and within one group. So interspecific competition is competition between two different species, while intraspecific competition is competition between members of one species. And both of these are very different. And what are they competing over? (laughs) They are competing over resources. Limited resources. Limited resources. There's no point in competing over um, the Infinite Donuts at Donut Day. Infinite Donuts, Donuts Day! I wish that were a thing. I just made that up, and now I really wish anywhere had free donuts. We had donuts in the office today. They were free. That's nice. So one limited resource. So one limited resource is mating partners. There's limited things to mate with. Preferably, what matters is members of your own species. Yeah, members of your own species. I just, I really lost my train of thought here. Um, I was distracted by the next sentence, which is, this leads to spiral duck penises. And yes, they are spirals. They are corkscrews, and some corkscrew up to 13 times. Sometimes they're longer than the duck itself. Sometimes they are longer than the duck itself. This really makes me wonder about physics. How does it, like, fall over? I, 
It's I'm, internal most of the time. It's internal most of the time. There is a brief period when it is not internal, though. Yeah, that's but then it's mounting about. a female. And it has the female to balance on. Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, okay. That's true. That makes yeah. sense. Because what's also fun is that because duck phalluses are supported by lymph instead of blood, reproduction is so fast, researchers studying it had to record it with a high-speed camera. It just literally fires and goes limp. Can't keep it up. It can't keep it up. No. Also, fun fact: male ducks have these corkscrew penises, and female ducks have corkscrew vaginas. They actually have anti-corkscrew vaginas. They corkscrew the other direction. <laughs> Heck of a signal. All right. <laughs> They're spirally, and they also have like sacs and crevices, which like I don't know exactly what that means. I can't exactly envision it, but it's it's weird. Sacs and crevices. It's exactly how it sounds. But yeah, there's a couple different theories about it. Some people say it's to um, make the male penis get lost. Yeah, just confuse on it. On its way up. Some say that these encourage more ejaculate, or that they might also be used to contain sperm until the duck wants to use it. So what I'm wondering here is, why do they not want to have sex here? Why is there so much not wanting this? The general theory is that fitness is different depending on, among many things, the sex and age of an animal. If you are a newborn animal, then you are the most fit if your parent is paying the most attention to you. So naturally, as a newborn, your interest is to make your parents pay attention to you. That makes you more fit. If you are a parent animal, then your best fitness interest might not to be only taking care of your one offspring. Your best fitness interest might be having three more offspring. And so there's competition that occurs between parents and offspring. And just the same, there's competition that occurs between the different sexes. If you're a male duck, then your best interest is to have sex with as many female ducks as possible, to have as many offspring as possible. And if you're a female duck, then your best interest is to limit the number of males that have sex with you. Because creating eggs is costly. Exactly. It's very costly. Raising baby ducks. Raising baby ducks. No one wants to be stuck alone with a litter of ducks. Although, I think male ducks are... They do actually co-parent their young. But yeah, so by having this opposite genitalia... It lets female ducks promote their evolutionary interest. We were talking about Birds of Paradise earlier, where sexual selection is in conflict with survival. But I did want to just highlight the Birds of Paradise a little more, because there's just so many cool ones, and they're weird. They do wacky courtship dances, and that's how the females determine which ones they want to mate with. There's this one cool one with a blackbird that raises its wings and has like two blue spots, and it like jumps back and forth on branches and just waving its wings, and it's hard to even see its head in the conflagration of feathers. And it's really cool. There's actually a case where sexual selection has run rampant on pre-existing preferences for things that don't exist in the species currently. So there's two closely related African birds, the long-tailed widow bird and the red bishop, a closely related St. Patrick bird. That means they come from the same place. That comes from the same place. So the long-tailed widow bird clearly has a long tail, and so the females prefer long tails of that species. But the red bishop females... Even though they males have shorter tails, females actually prefer males with longer tails. And researchers learned this by gluing false tails onto the male red bishops. <laughs> and the females liked it more. <laughs> Which just goes to show how genetically ingrained these traits are. Also, just how many behavior experiments I know of 
where researchers have like glued stuff onto animals. <laughs> it's a fair number, like usually non harmfully. Just usually. to test it. I mean, it was like they're just feathers. Now they have a cool tail and they're super sexy. Like that's really great. <laughs> that's a cool thing. Okay, so the takeaway for evolution in our biology here is that sometimes evolution does weird things that don't really make sense when you first look at them. But when you get to know these weird things and when you study them more and you look at the underlying patterns, they really do support the theory of evolution as a whole. When you understand that there is a genetic basis for attraction and that this genetic basis can be so strong that it can overpower constraints that would be put on a trait by other forms of natural selection, then it makes sense that sexual selection would occur. And the thing about the widow birds that interests me is how it shows that preferences can really be innate. That even when it's not something they would have learned from their own species, it couldn't have been something they learned in childhood, a preference like the zebra finches that they learned when they were young. Their males of their species don't have long tails, and yet this preference is still here, presumably as an evolutionary relic from a time when perhaps they did have long tails or a common ancestor of theirs. Or perhaps the genetic attraction itself is linked to another gene that they share very, very closely with their cousin species. Yeah, but presumably that it would be an ancestral gene from a time when it was a relevant thing to have, right? Or maybe it could just be a weird thing. Genetics are weird like that. Okay, it could just be a weird tail thing. If it was linked to a very important gene, it could stick around even though it does very little. Well, yeah, in this bird, yes. In this bird, yeah. In the bird that doesn't have the long tails. Yeah, I'm thinking ancestrally. There could have been long tails in the ancestor, but they don't have to have long tails. Okay. They could just be into that. 